Hi there, welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast about public speaking and speaking up. If you struggle with saying what you want to say on stage, on camera, or in conversation, you're in the right place. I'm Angela Lucier, your host. I'm also an author, professional speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. If you want to practice the tips you learn on this podcast, you can check out a Speaker Sisterhood club as a guest for free. Learn more at speakersisterhood.com. Hey friends, welcome back to Claim the Stage. Uh, I guess it's been two weeks since my last episode and just wanted to say I decided to take last week off because I was not in the best headspace and I thought I could either just try to put together an episode real quick and get something out there or I could skip it, take care of my mental health and not put everyone through a lackluster episode. So I decided not to do it. And here we are with an amazing episode. Seriously, this episode is a gift to all of humanity. (laughs) If you're someone who struggles with anxiety, you are going to love this episode. My guest today is amazing. And I'm so lucky that I get to have her on the show. And I've known her for such a long time, and I can't believe it didn't occur to me until now to have her on the show, and it was only after the recommendation of a um, mutual friend that um, I asked her to come on. Judy Gruppenhoff is an integrative wellness coach and a heart math certified trainer and interventions professional. She specializes in anxiety coaching, and she has a focus on the neurobiology of change and self-compassion. For over 10 years, she has been helping women of all ages learn practical brain-based skills to calm the nervous system, quiet inner critical dialogues, and live with greater power, peace, and possibility. Now, we're, we're always talking about speaking on this podcast, and this is a topic that brings up so much anxiety for so many because it can lead to that big thing, that rejection, right? So we talk a lot about that on today's episode. And I'm particularly interested in this subject because since having my son two years ago and having really intense postpartum depression, I've had lingering anxiety since then that I've been trying to manage and work with. And so a lot of the stuff that we talk about in today's episode is techniques and exercises you can do that will actually change your neurobiology and help you in those high anxiety moments. And I know that what we talked about, I will definitely be trying out because it's all practical and simple and quick and things you can integrate into your day every day. So I hope you love today's episode as much as I did. And without further ado, here is today's conversation with Judy Grubinoff. Judy, welcome to Claim the Stage. Hi, Angela. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I know we've known each other for at least 10 years now. I We have a friend in common, and actually we have many friends in common, and you are a member of Speaker Sisterhood. And I recently have started to get more interested in neuroscience and trying to understand what happens to us when we fear, we feel fear and anxiety. And when we're going to do something that could lead to rejection or could change us, change someone's perception of us 
like speaking up in either a small group or with someone we care about, or, you know, on a big stage. And so your name came up in the conversations I was having with friends about having new podcast guests to talk about this subject. And I'm excited to have you on the show today, because we're going to talk about the neurobiology of self-criticism versus self-compassion, and also just the role that fear and anxiety play in all of that. And you're going to offer some great exercises to help the audience to deal with all of that. But before we get into that, you're an integrative wellness coach. You have a whole bunch of training that has brought you to where you are today. And I thought before we got into the conversation, you could share a little bit about how you got into this type of work and, you know, what brought you here? Cause I always find people's journeys to be very interesting. So I have struggled with anxiety or did struggle with anxiety for much of my life. And when I was in college, my anxiety was so bad that not only could I not speak in a class, I couldn't even write a paper because it just felt like even that was too much exposure. And, you know, I would, if I found out I had to write a paper for a class, I'd actually drop the class and take a class that was in a big, you know, auditorium with 200 people where I could be more anonymous. And so it really, um, I didn't really know at that point that what I was dealing with was anxiety, but it really colored all of my choices, you know, in terms of what I could study. And it's, I ended up getting into computer science because I found I could write a 2,500 line computer program far easier than I could write, you know, a two page paper. Um, so it really dictated my choices in life. And, um, and it, it was a long time before I began figuring out what it was going to take me to unravel my anxiety issues. And, and what I found was, I think the path that many people go down, you know, when they've got anxiety is finding a therapist, getting into therapy. And while that was really helpful in many ways, what I found was that understanding my anxiety, understanding where my anxiety came from, didn't necessarily help me solve the problem of my anxiety. Right. So I understood it really well, but I still in my body was not feeling it wasn't helping me calm things down. So you're right. I did end up going on. I studied a lot of different fields, a lot of different study. Um, and about 10 years ago, I was hired to go to work on an inpatient psychiatric unit um, at Providence Hospital. And I was working with children and adolescents. And really, because it was such a short stay facility, I had to learn tools that could help pretty quickly. I needed sort of a, to develop a quick set of tools to be able to help these kids have something that they could leave with that they could then, uh, you know, apply in their lives. And that was really the beginning of this. I learned uh, at that point, I got trained in something called heart math, which is a, a system of simple exercises and biofeedback that help people manage, learn to manage their nervous systems. And and because I was, I had actually been hired by the chaplain, I was working in spiritual care department. I had a really different orientation with the kids I was working with. And so we really started dealing a lot with self-compassion and self-worth issues. And I found that there were ways to just layer all of this stuff together so that it could actually, in a fairly short period of time, once you understood how to work with your nervous system, you could layer these things on and actually affect real change. Wow. I want to go back to something you said earlier about when you got into computer science and realizing that a lot of your life decisions were based on trying to manage your anxiety. Was there a moment when you realized that that was the motivation behind the decisions you were making in your life? Or how did that become clear to you? I don't think I realized it until later when I started studying anxiety and started understanding what the neurobiology of anxiety is and how it works. 
and how that was driving things. And sometimes anxiety can be really productive. Like I work with a lot of women who have what I call high functioning anxiety. And, and that's really, I mean, that's not like a clinical diagnosis, but I think it's being recognized as more of a real thing. And it's often women who are very uh, competent and, you know, professionals and on the outside appear really together and in control and calm and collected, but on the inside are experiencing a tremendous amount of anxiety and maybe it's perfectionism or imposter syndrome or um, just feeling like they have to have things in control all of the time. And that there gets to be, it's a really interesting phenomenon because it almost gets to be like you're going down the river with a foot and two canoes, right? Like you've got your internal reality and your external reality and trying to manage those two when they're not matched is really exhausting because you're trying to, you know, really maintain sort of this outward persona of everything being together when on the inside, things are really crumbling. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's who I work a lot with now as a, as a coach. Yeah. Well, I can say I fall into that category (laughs) and I know a lot of women who also fall into that category. And I would say a lot of them are in speaker sisterhood. They, they have big dreams. They have a lot of things they want to accomplish, but they feel that inner sense of anxiety and fear around doing it. So I'd love to talk more about that for a minute before we go into some of the other topics. Are there some, some starting points that you, you go to when you're working with women who are struggling with this? Yeah. So, and I want to get back to the first part of the question too, that you just asked about, because I didn't really answer it about when I knew that anxiety was really driving those decisions. And I think at some point I realized that, that, you know, part of my need to have things in control while was making me feel kind of crazy on the inside actually made me really good at computer science because it was, that was a field where all the data it was like there were inputs, there were outputs, and I could, you know, everything was controlled. So I was actually really good at it, good at that in part because of my anxiety. So sometimes for women who have high functioning anxiety, anxiety can actually serve a really useful purpose. And where I, and where I start with this generally is with the neurobiology of what's going on, because once you understand what's happening with the neurobiology, it's a lot easier to think about getting your hands on the controls of what's going on. Because I think so often when there's that split, when there is that, um, that kind of our inner reality and our outer reality aren't sort of meshed up that that in itself just creates a lot of anxiety and that it can feel like we have this really deep fatal flaw and we look around and nobody else looks like they're experiencing this. So we think, okay, so what's wrong with us without really realizing how many women are actually experiencing this. And when you understand what the neurobiology is, it's a lot easier to get your hands on the controls and feel like, okay, maybe this isn't something wrong with me. This is just something that I can learn to get my nervous system to do differently. Mm -hmm. That is so comforting to think about. And, and I never I never, I guess, um, matched up the two next to each other and said, okay, the inside is this like swirling cyclone of what ifs and, um, this could go wrong. And what if I say that versus like this outer persona of calm, cool, collected professional, um, and, and realizing like, oh, all the other calm, cool, collected professionals around me have the same cyclone <laughs> inside of them. <laughs> that, I don't know. That is kind of comforting. Okay. So the neurobiology of it, tell me more about what do you mean by that? 
So we have, so I'm going to talk about a little bit about the brain and I'll do it in, in some really simple terms. Okay. But if you think about the brain as having three parts, and I know it's way more complicated than that, but this is a really simple model. Um, and, and I use a model called the hand model from Dr. Dan Siegel, and I'm actually going to describe it. And I think people will be able to follow along, even though they can't see it. But basically, if you think about the brain as having three parts, right, there's, um, there's the brainstem, there's something called the limbic system, and then there's the cortex, which is kind of wraps underneath our skull, and that's the thinking part of our brains. So if you hold up your hand, right, and you fold your thumb across the palm, that's something called the limbic system. And the limbic system is some structures in the middle of the brain, and one of them is called the amygdala, which we'll be talking about. And then the brainstem would be down around where the palm is. And then if you wrap your fingers over your thumb, that represents the cortex. So that's the thinking part of your brain. It's you know creative problem solving and strategic planning and self-reflection. And what happens is that when anxiety is triggered, so the amygdala is a big part of our threat response system. And it's kind of like if you fold your thumb across the, the palm, it's right where the tip of your thumb is, right? So that part of our brain, the amygdala, is operating out under the level of conscious you know, awareness. And it's always scanning the world for threat and danger. And if it perceives a threat, and this is the important part, it can be either a real threat or an imagined threat. I mean, it could be something physical in our environment, or it could be just the fear of being judged or the fear of what somebody's gonna think uh, you know, about us if we say something stupid, for instance, that that fires up our fight or flight response in our body. So whether it's a real or an imagined threat, that fight or flight response gets fired up. And when that fight or flight response gets fired up, if you just flip your hand, your fingers up, so they're pointing straight up, that represents sort of our cortex getting disconnected from the rest of our brain. So part of what happens is that when this fight or flight response gets happens, we fire up our, you know, our muscles get tense, our breathing gets faster, our heart rate goes up. All of those things are designed to get us out of danger if there really is some action that we have to take. But what also happens is it disconnects our survival mode that we're now in from the thinking part of our brain. And the reason that happens is because if there is really a danger that we have to respond to in the environment, we actually wanna be thinking, we wanna be acting out of a place of instinctive reaction. We don't wanna be thinking because that's the slow track that our instinctive reaction is the fast track. So the anxiety response that happens is actually a really normal response for us as human beings. It's just that in anxiety, what happens is it's firing inappropriately. Okay, so a practical application version of this is so you're in a meeting and all of a sudden the person running the meeting points at you and says, what do you think? Now, this is probably the moment when your amygdala perks up and everything else shuts down, right? You go into survival mode. We go into survival mode. Exactly. And so it's like, okay, well, am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to say something stupid? If I say the wrong thing, what's going to happen? Are people going to, am I then going to get fired? And sometimes what happens is when we disconnect from that thinking part of the brain, it's almost like that amygdala, you know, once it fires up that fight or flight response, if your thinking brain checks out, that's also kind of the brakes on the system and it can no longer do an accurate assessment about whether something is really dangerous or not. So if you think about that amygdala as being like a smoke detector, right? Smoke detector goes off in the house and all of a sudden you wanna run out of the house. Well, your thinking brain checks out 
And what that means is it's no longer able to look down and say, okay, so the smoke alarm's going off, but is that just, is that the house burning or is it just toast in the toaster? Mm -hmm. And we really can't tell. And so in that moment, we begin spinning in sort of that cycle of sort of panic mode and we can't think straight. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what happens next if you want to get out of the panic mode and stop the spinning? So there are some really simple exercises that you can do to be able to very quickly interrupt that anxiety response, right? And, you know, in the middle of a meeting, you're not necessarily going to be able to do these. And so when I work with people, it's really about learning how to do these when the stakes are lower so that you can, your nervous system learns how to sort of get itself back engaged and you get less reactive in general. And over time, you can build the skills to be able to have more flexibility. So you're less likely to to do that. So you're saying something like a daily practice where you're doing this in a place where it's low threat. It's you're, you're not on the spot with your boss. You're maybe in your living room and you're just going through a, a, a series of steps. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's some really simple exercises and ways to interrupt that nervous system response. All right. Can we talk about them? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. What's the first one? So there's, there's a three-step process that I've developed. That's really, um, you know, it takes about five minutes to do this whole thing from start to end. I mean, we can do it really quickly here. We won't go through the whole five minutes, but basically the first one is really simply, it's called bilateral tapping and you just tap. It means tapping on opposite sides of the body. So whether you're tapping with your hands on the top of your knees or the sides of your legs, or what I often do is I cross my arms across the chest and just tap on opposite shoulders. And you just tap like four beats per second. So, you know, it'd be like one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. And you just tap like that for about 30 seconds, right? And then after 30 seconds, you just slow it down, gradually bring it to a stop. And then just move your hands to the center of your chest. And you do a nice gentle press right in the center. And then slow your breathing down to five, you know, count of five in and a count of five out. And those two steps, if you practice those, I mean, this was really fast, but if you sort of stretch that out, what happens is that that's happening because our bodies, our nervous systems respond and, and train to rhythm. When you do sort of a fast tap, for about 30 seconds, you're actually, or 40 seconds, you're actually meeting your nervous system where it is. So if you're really anxious, doing a fast tap is meeting your nervous system where it is. And as you slow it down, your nervous system slows down with it. So that's kind of the first step. And then you can move right into what's called coherent breathing. And when you put your hands on the center of the chest and you do a nice gentle press like that, it's almost like giving your heart a hug. It actually releases something called oxytocin which is a safety and security hormone. And that oxytocin is almost an immediate antidote to that fight or flight response. And then breathing into the count of five and out to the count of five is something called coherent breathing. And when you do that, you actually change your heart rhythm pattern to a more harmonious and even pattern, which then sends a signal to the amygdala to calm down and it facilitates information getting back to the prefrontal cortex. So you've got this smooth flow of information all the way through your brain, which helps get you more balanced and more connected and centered. And there's a third step, right? There is a third step. So after you do the coherent breathing for a few minutes, 
you can add in another step, which is imagining that there's a really kind and supportive voice, right? The kindest, most supportive voice that you can imagine. And imagining that voice saying to you, in this moment, you are safe. So you're continuing the breathing. And then you just start adding in this voice that's really a voice of support from the outside. In this moment, you are safe. And what that does is it begins to create a sense of safety and connection in our bodies and our nervous systems, which is really what, you know, what, what our nervous systems are longing for when we're in that state of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So those three steps can really help to shift that anxiety response, bring your prefrontal cortex back online, and then reestablish that sense of safety and connection. So if I'm going back to the meeting, I'm, I'm called on to, to share my perspective mm-hmm. and I give it, and now I'm completely in fight or flight mode. So what I could do is reach under the table and tap my knees. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then I could do the breathing and then without not even saying a word or showing anybody what I'm doing, I can be doing these three steps in the meeting and working myself back to a place of thinking clearly. You could. And that's why I really recommend that people start this as a practice, because when you put your hands on the center of your chest and you do the coherent breathing, once you do this enough, you can start learning to actually generate that sort of that, that feeling in your chest, that sort of feeling of peace and ease so that you could actually begin that breathing and pulling up that feeling right when you're in the meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. And when you, when you're sharing these steps, the thought I keep having is, I can tell you've done a lot of work and research and thought deeply about this in order to build a system that's effective and quick and um, gets the job done without requiring that much of the person who's doing it. And those are usually the things that work the best because they're easy to remember and easy to do. And so I appreciate the the work you've done to, to make something like this and I think it's incredibly powerful because people who struggle with anxiety, like it can, you can be stuck in that loop for hours, days. Yeah. Yeah. It can be, it can take a long time to get back. And this can be a really quick way to short circuit that whole thing and just get yourself centered again. You know, originally when I, so this three-step process is something that evolved. And what I found, and this was really true during COVID because I was working as a health coach at a medical practice and there were lots of people with anxiety and there were no therapists. And so I would often get people, right? But because the anxiety was so heightened, breathing, they just couldn't get there. And what I discovered was that that actually became the second step of this three-step process that when, you know, we then layered on these other things and did the tapping first to get down to the point, the nervous system calmed down to the point where you could do the breathing. And then adding in the connection and safety, the three of them just work really well together. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, is there a difference between anxiety and fear? So anxiety, well, fear is a normal response, right? I mean, that's a normal response to something that's happening out in, in the world. If we didn't have a fear response, you know, we wouldn't have survived very long as a species. So the fear response is actually really essential for us to have. There's really two parts when you talk about anxiety, there's the physical response, which is that fight or flight, your body, you know, the heart rate gets faster, your breathing gets faster, maybe you start sweating or trembling. Those are physical, the physical responses. Anxiety really happens when you have sort of the psychological component that's layered onto that, which is the what if scenario, sort of looking out into the future and starting to worry about things that maybe are not even here yet. 
And when you sort of lose the connection with that thinking part of your brain, it's really easy to spin into these cycles of, of, of what if thinking and disaster thinking, and you just kind of go down the rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. So, so being called on in a meeting can quickly cycle to, they're not going to, they're not going to like what I have to say. I'm going to sound really stupid. They're not going to want me on the team anymore. You know, and all of a sudden it can cycle into, I'm going to get fired from my job and I'm going to be homeless on the street. Right. I'm going to have no way of supporting myself. So part of that happens because we have a really, we're really wired to, um, well, there's a lot of reasons that happens, but one is that we're really wired to uh, avoid rejection because evolutionarily, you know, we're tribal people. And if we got kicked out of the tribe, then we wouldn't survive very long. So rejection is something that we're really hardwired to avoid. So that's a, that's a piece of it. But the other piece is just neurobiologically what's going on that once you kind of flip your lid and you literally don't have that connection with the prefrontal cortex, there's no way to do an assessment about what, you know, is what I'm thinking really rational? You know, how likely is this to happen? Yeah. But once you do those three steps, you, you may be able to look at those questions much differently. Like, will I really lose my job over this comment I just made in a meeting? Like, you may be able to um, come back down from it a little bit. Yeah. yeah so is it, would you say fear is a physiological response while anxiety is a psychological response? Is that? Well, is I that- think anxiety, I mean, anxiety, they're, they're really close, right? I mean, anxiety and fear, I mean, anxiety really is fear. It's just that anxiety is very often fear about something that's going to be happening in the future. Right. Okay. The fear response about something happening in our environment is, is a natural and healthy response. But when that goes to worrying about what's going to be happening down the, down the road and going to that, you know, down that rabbit hole, that's when you're moving into that anxiety realm. And then you start worrying about everything. Okay. You also talk about neural pathways and um, neuroplasticity and the role they play in anxiety and fear. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, so, okay. So to talk about neural pathways, we first have to talk about what's going on in the brain a little bit. So we have, you know, I don't know, lots and lots of neurons and each of those neurons has many, many connections in them. And so the way that we learn and remember things is that we create what's called neural pathways. So those neurons, those neuronal connections get wired together and they help us remember things. Like if you're learning to tie your shoes, right? Then once you practice over and over again, you get a set of neural pathways, which are kind of like roads going through the brain that just make things easier for us to remember things in the future. So if we had to relearn things every time we had to do them, it would be really hard to function in our daily life. But if you have these neural pathways that are set, they're neurons that get connected. So like when you have a memory, for instance, of something, um, even, even something as simple as an apple, right? There's the memory of how it smells and how it tastes and how it looks and its color and its shape. And so there's things that get wired together in our brain to help us sort of pull that information together. So anxiety, um, you can get neural pathways for anxiety. So once you get these neural connections that form, it becomes easier and easier to go down those pathways in the future. So that's why habits are so hard to break sometimes because we have these neural pathways that, that are hooked up and wired together that we've repeated so much that they become our default settings. And it could be, 
you know, any kind of habit, but it's, it's even true for our emotional responses that once we have, once we get a, a habit of a certain emotional response, we're more likely to have that habit of an emotional response in the future. How do we change it once it's set like that? So there's a couple of principles in neurobiology, right? And one is called what fires together, wires together. And what that means is that when we repeat something over and over again, especially when there is strong emotional content. And I mean, this is really relevant to anxiety, right? Because we may have had a time when we got really humiliated when we talked out, when we said something and somebody felt like we were really treated as like, you know, had a a bad reaction. So those things get wired in. And so those fears about that happening again is how those habits happen. There's also a principle called use it or lose it, right? So the things that we repeat get stronger. And when we stop repeating those things, those neural pathways weaken and we can form new neural pathways um, or, or other ones strengthen. So it's recognizing, you know, if you think about anxiety as being this anxiety superhighway, where there might be if you've lots of on-ramps, right? Lots of things that can trigger the anxiety, that when you're on that anxiety superhighway, actually stopping the anxiety response and doing something different is how you begin to change those pathways. So in this case, it's interrupting that anxiety response, right? Doing the tapping, doing the breathing, and then doing something else, which is creating a sense of safety and security. So the more you interrupt and redirect that response, the more those anxiety pathways can weaken and the more other ones can strengthen. This is making a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It makes total sense once you understand what's going on. Yeah. And the way you're describing it, it's like, oh my God, this is like, I have so much control over this and it doesn't have to be um, hard to manage. It's just a practice. What role does neuroplasticity play in this? Well, neuroplasticity really is that ability of our, of our neural pathways to, to change. That's, that's really what it is that we can rewire our brains and we do it through what we feel, what we experience, what we learn. So just the act of doing something different is actually starting new neural pathways to build new neural pathways. That's so empowering to know that we can change it on our own. And that's, that's really why what really lights me up about this work is how empowering it is, because, you know, you can think of anxiety as being the overestimation of threat, meaning that our threat detection system is on high alert, you know, a lot or inappropriately so. Um, and then the underestimation of our ability to cope. So if you don't think that you can do anything about the anxiety when it's going to happen, that can create anxiety in and of itself right? Because if you're going to walk into that meeting and you know, you might be called on and you don't think there's going to be anything that you can do, you can start getting anxious about getting anxious, Yeah, which makes that response in the meeting even worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any stories of uh, people you've worked with who've used this three-step process and how it has helped them just in a generic sense? Oh yeah. I mean, I see this every day. I mean, people, I mean, literally women who thought, or anybody who thought that they would maybe never be able to control their anxiety response, find out that they actually can. I mean, this is that three-step process is basically what I do all day with people, you know, when I first meet them and it's a process of building. And I think the important thing to know is that it's not, and the reason I got into coaching 
um, was because I found that I could teach people all the skills in the world, but if there were things in their life that were out of balance, then those skills were only going to go so far that other areas in their life might need to be addressed, right? That those areas either cause anxiety or are created by anxiety, that those also need to be addressed. So once you learn the skills, then it's a, a matter of how do you apply those skills in specific areas in your life. And it's a process. It's not like flipping a light switch. You know, it really is a process. But once you see how this is starting to change, it sort of builds momentum so that change becomes easier in the future. What kinds of changes have you seen your clients make as a result of doing this? Um, I think one of the biggest ones is finding their voice, is of having the courage to be able to speak up in situations. Um, but interestingly, once the once the anxiety response gets reduced, that almost happens naturally, right? It's, it's almost a natural outgrowth of being able to be in a more centered place and saying, yeah, okay, so that doesn't really work for me rather than feeling like, you know, what are they going to be thinking about me or whatever this anxiety response is. Yeah. So if you are working with a client who came in with um, a lot of anxiety around speaking, what kind of goal would you give them say, in 30 days, like if they came in and said on a scale of one to 10, my anxiety, when I want to speak is a 10, would you say like, okay, do this every day for 30 days. And maybe in 30 days, you'll be at a five or like, is it not that easy? I think it's not always that easy because all those things, those messages that we've gotten over our lifetimes are often what's underlying that why it's so hard to speak. So where I start, so I, when I work with people just with the tools and the skills, it usually takes three to four weeks to get everything calmed down. But in that three to four weeks, we're also looking at, okay, so where's a way, how's a way that you could test this during the week? So what do you have coming up that might be a challenge for you? Okay, how can we think about when will you do this before? How will you integrate these tools? Which ones will you use? What works best for you? And that three-step process is just one of many tools that I use for, you know, to help people, but it's really about what, and it's not usually my goals, it's really their goals about what is it, that, where do you want to get to and what, how, what toolkit can we build for you for, because I'm all about flexible toolkits, right? So teaching a bunch of tools that can then be adapted and implemented in a variety of ways in different situations and different tools. I mean, different situations sometimes require different tools. So it's, it really depends on what their goals are and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. I love that idea of looking for an opportunity to practice the mm -hmm. the three steps in the week. So that's something everyone listening can, can try out as well. Like look at what your next week holds. And if there's a moment in there where, you know, oh, this could, this could get dicey, <laughs> maybe trying out the, the steps. Yeah. So, yeah. and initially what I find when people first start working with these is that generally what happens is you end up going way down the anxiety rabbit hole and then you have to get yourself back. That's mm -hmm. sort of like where people start, you know? And, and then as we work and we try and get it closer and closer to that's, that's okay, I'm on the anxiety superhighway. How do I get off? Um, that's step one. And then we start working at, okay, what are the on-ramps? What are the things that are triggering? And then we sort of back it up from there until hopefully you can get to the point where a lot of those emotional triggers just aren't happening as much. We mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that we we're going to be talking about self-compassion. So I'm wondering how we can tie that into this conversation. How does self-compassion play into anxiety and um, finding your voice and this whole process? Yeah. Well, I think that, that one of the things that's really interesting that I've 
you, you know, that I work a lot with is that when we're feeling really self-critical and self-judgmental, especially about, um, you know, what are they going to think about me? Or I'm going to sound really stupid. What's coming underneath of that is actually something often very positive, which is I want to belong or I want to be seen as, um, you know, I want people to respect me or I want people to value what I have to say. Those are all really, really strong values or I want to be in community or I want to be able to whatever the thing is, there's often a positive underneath. And if you can, you know, there's a way of working with this where you can sort of acknowledging, okay, so I'm feeling really anxious right now. Well, it makes sense that, you know, it makes sense that you feel that way because you really want to be accepted. And that being accepted is a really positive thing. And what happens is that our brain, the self-criticism is actually our brain trying to prevent us from being rejected, right? So that's one way to think about this. And the way our brain works is if it can like beat us up enough, right? And make us feel bad enough about, about how we said something, we'll never, ever, ever do that in the future. But what happens with the neurobiology of self-criticism is that our, our brains, when we're self-critical, we become both the attacked and the attacker simultaneously. And so we get into the state of paralysis. And it also, self-criticism fires up the same parts of the brain as when we're punished and humiliated. So if we're beating ourselves up, trying to make us, ourselves behave a certain way because we don't want to be punished and humiliated, that turns out to be a really ineffective way to make change. That far more effective is developing that really compassionate, self-compassionate voice. So, okay, so you're feeling anxious. It makes sense that you feel that way because you really want to be accepted. And then what would you say to your best friend? Well, you know, I've said things before in this group and it's been okay. You know, that hasn't really happened. So what's kind of the, the resilient piece that you can bring to that? Or if I say something not exactly right, I can clean it up later. You know, so that there's always a resilience piece that we can bring to that of turning it around and being able to take that self-criticism and sort of diffuse it by finding that value underneath and knowing that we can rely on that value in the future. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And it's, I love that what you said about being the attacked and the attacker, that just it really um, resonates. Are there any exercises that can help you to detect the self-critical voice? Because if you're constantly operating from that place, you may not even be aware that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, do you have any tips on how to recognize that you've fallen into a self-critical space and how to get out of it and into a more self-compassionate space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think this is part of the reason why I have people practice when the stakes are not so high, because when you start practicing these sort of neurosystem and sort of heart focused exercises, you start beginning, you start feeling, okay, here's what it feels like to be stressed or anxious or, or self-critical. And, oh, this is what it feels like to be calm and centered and feeling more compassion. Right. So just by doing those exercises, you begin to see that there's a difference because you're right. If you're living in that space a lot, sometimes you don't even see it. Yeah. How do you quiet the inner critical dialogue? Is that the same thing? Well, it, it's, it's similar ways. I mean, as soon as you interrupt that, as soon as you interrupt that, that cycle, that, you know, anxiety response, you tend to be coming from a more heart-centered, more compassionate, more caring place anyway. So recognizing that we have a voice in our heads, right? That is sometimes not all that helpful. It's usually that telling us like all the things we've done wrong. 
but the voice in the heart is really different. So when you can quiet the voice in the head and sort of do that practice, really, you know, the, the coherent breathing, right, with that heart focus pressing on the heart, it can sometimes get us into that place where we can say, okay, so that's true, but what does my heart say? Mm -hmm. Right. And once you can realize that there's a difference between what your head says and what your heart says, it starts shifting something. So can I share some of my self-critical thoughts and maybe you can flip them into self-compassionate thoughts? Okay. So the first one is uh, that I hear a lot is you're a terrible mom. That's one I tell myself, what would, how could we make that more positive? (laughs) Let's just do that exercise that we just did. Right. So, so for the first thing is just literally naming what you're feeling. Okay. You're feeling guilty because you're a terrible, because you feel like you're a terrible mom or you're feeling guilty right now, just naming the feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that simply by naming the feeling accurately, you send these little squirts of neurochemicals down to start calming the brain. So the first thing is naming what's going on. It's called name it to tame it. This is another Dan Siegel sort of thing that once you name it correctly, your neurosystem starts calming down. So the second thing is, so why is it that it's, you know, so the next thing would be, okay, so what's the value underneath? You really value, you know, wanting to raise your child well. That's huge. That's a really positive thing. So your brain is kind of beating yourself up to make sure that you, that you raise that child really, really well. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of the third part of that would be again, using that, that caring supportive voice, right. Saying, okay, so what would you say to your best friend in that situation? You know, and that's just a question for you. What, what would you say to your best friend who was feeling like they were being a terrible mom? (laughs) You're doing a great job. And the fact that you're concerned about it means that it's important to you. And, and so you're going to make, you're going to try hard to do it well. And if you feel like you're not measuring up to your own expectations, you might be hard on yourself, but that doesn't mean you're not doing it right. That's beautiful. Right. And so getting into that coherent state, right. Doing the coherent breathing, getting into that place where your heart and your mind or emotions are all lined up and in sync having that conversation of naming, okay, you're feeling guilty and you know, your value is there really, you're doing this well. And then flipping it around and having that, that caring supportive voice saying, but you're actually doing a great job. Yeah. You know, and even if you don't do it perfectly, it doesn't mean you're not doing a great job. Yeah. So I guess another one could be, you're a terrible public speaker. So the self-compassion or the steps would be realizing that the value is, um, wanting to, to do a good job for people, like caring about the experience, caring about the experience, having something important to share that you really want to share well, Mm -hmm. and then that turning it around. Well, you know, so what's the feedback that you've gotten? You've always gotten good feedback (laughs) about how powerful your things are. Right. And when you do this from that state of coherence, right, which is a, which is a physio, a, a specific physiologic state where your heart rhythm patterns change, and this is a lot of the work from the HeartMath Institute, um, that it's a lot easier to take those messages in. It's hard to take those messages in when we're just trying to convince ourselves that we should think differently, right? Because a lot of times people try and logic their way out of it, and you can't think your way out of anxiety. You've got to get the body calm first. And once the body is calm, and you're coming at it from a more heart-centered place of then being able to take those messages in and you know, and notice that I said using a a caring and supportive voice, right? So if we use an I voice, like, um, 
well, I'm a, I, I know people have always told me I'm a good speaker. It's really easy to argue with ourselves when it's us saying it to us. But if you can have a voice from the outside that you know really has your best interest at heart and having that voice saying it to you, it's a really different experience. Mm -hmm. So getting into that coherent state and then sort of going through that process is one way to really shift that. This has been incredibly powerful, this this conversation. And I think it's it's life-changing work that can be applied in so many places in life. And I so appreciate you coming on the show. Are there any last pieces of advice you'd like to share on the subject just to wrap up? Just that this really is doable. It really is possible to, to rewire even deeply embedded patterns. I see it all the time. And the trick really is working with the body first, that we can't think our way out of anxiety. So once you get the body calmed down, then you can start, you know, layering these other things on. Awesome. Is there, are, do you have any upcoming programs or any work that you're doing that you'd like to promote? Yeah. Well, uh, if, if you go to my website, judykrupenhoff.com, it's the, the, you can download that three-step process that we just went through and it's a longer version. There's more context and there's some videos so you can follow along. Um, so that's a great place to get started. Um, coming up in, mm, I'm hoping January, February, March, somewhere in there, probably February, March, what I'm putting together is, a, uh, is some webinars. And I think there'll be two parts. There'll be sort of a, an online thing that people can do on their own with a workbook and, you know, and, uh, um, and videos, but there'll also be a piece where people want more support where they can join in either a skills implementation group or a coaching group to be able to address things uh, in a more targeted way, to use those skills to apply them how it's in their own lives. Awesome. So do you have a mailing list that they'd be able to get on to learn more about that? Yeah. So if, if they download, if you go to the, the website and you download the three-step process, that'll get you on the mailing list, but there's also a link to join the newsletter. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I got to watch that short video series you did and it's, it's wonderful because it's concise and you give the, the visual um, examples of what you're doing and it's really easy to follow along. So I highly recommend everyone goes and checks that out to get a little bit more beyond what we talked about here today. Judy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Was, this was really helpful and I hope everyone listening felt the same way. And uh, I hope everyone goes and follows your work because you're doing really important stuff. Well, thanks so much for having me, Angela. I hope you loved today's show. If you did, a great way to say thanks is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It takes around 30 seconds, and it's a great way to say thanks. My music was created by Kelly Vogel, and the show is produced in the Glitter Closet in Western Massachusetts. Well, that does it for me this week, my friends. As always, stop waiting, start creating. See you next time.